Before we start, we want to let you know we've launched a Patreon page where supporters can receive perks like bonus episodes and exclusive content. Because Pop Fiction Women is our passion project, a place where we give women space to show up and offer in-depth analysis in the ways we're used to hearing about male creators and their characters. We delve into creativity and psychology with a dash of astrology, and we have so much fun doing it. Just two friends breaking down books, movies, and shows like Normal People, Fleabag, and I May Destroy You. Every single aspect of this podcast we do ourselves, from the preparation to the recording, from the editing to the social media promotion. So we're adding a Patreon platform because we want to keep making the show you love and hopefully expand it even further. So please consider becoming one of our most complicated fans and contributing on Patreon. To learn more, go to patreon.com forward slash pop fiction women. On Pop Fiction Women, we explore what it means to be a complicated woman. Tired of endless variations of leading men next to one-dimensional archetypes of women or strong female leads written by men that were essentially guys in women's bodies. We started this show to highlight the many female characters in entertainment worth exploring, as well as the women who dreamt them up. And now we're adding those creators to our conversations, discussing their process and passion in bringing these women to life. Welcome to Complicated Conversations. On these episodes, there's no spoilers. So come on, it's starting. Alyssa Cole is an award-winning author of historical, contemporary, and sci-fi romance. A Princess in Theory was one of the New York Times' 100 Notable Books of 2018. Her books have received critical acclaim from the New York Times, Library Journal, BuzzFeed, Kirkus, Booklist, Jezebel, Vulture, Book Riot, Entertainment Weekly, and various other outlets. I mean, that is a very impressive and prolific <laughs> bio. So, and I'll tell you, it's definitely the thing that jumped out to me and why we wanted to talk to you. So thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you for having me. We're so excited. But before we dive into your newest novel, No One Is Watching, we want to talk about the beginning of your career. When did you know you wanted to be a writer? It's kind of one of those things I always wanted to do. At other points, there were, you know, there were other things I wanted to do, like be an Egyptologist or a paleontologist. Those were the big 90s careers that kids wanted after Jurassic Park <laughs> and like hieroglyphs became the thing. But yeah. those were, you know, a bit not unrealistic, but not things that panned out for me since I didn't love some aspects of science. I did work in science later. That's a whole other thing. But I kind of just always wanted to be a writer, but I didn't really think about it as a career that I would like, it just seemed like something that happened to people. Uh, and in a way yeah. it is. So when did you decide to take it seriously that you could be a writer? Not just that it was a thing out there for people to do, but that you really thought, okay, this is something I can do. And I mean, I thought I could do it for a while like it was a running joke and when I was in college like oh yeah one day you'll you know your book will be published and I guess it was the point when I was like oh I need to finish the book and that was I think around 2010 yeah around 2010 when I really decided to I had been you know working my way up toward finishing something 
And then I learned about National Novel Writing Month, which is you try Mm -hmm. to finish a manuscript in 30 days, which kind of fits with how I write in general anyway, just sitting down every day. I'm trying to be the kind of writer that sits down every day because I'm sure it's way less stressful. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But I mean, you're obviously a productive writer. So whether you sit down every day or not, you're getting it done. That's true. That's true. So let's, let's, yeah, let's talk about No One Is Watching. First of all, that title and the cover is so good. But the title I thought was good. And then when I finished the book, I was like, oh, shit, that gives me chills. So, so tell our listeners a little bit about No One Is Watching. And I, I apologize. It, it, it's when, when no one is watching. So when no one is watching, which it's basically about a one, a black woman who is born in Brooklyn, gets married to some asshole and moves away. The marriage doesn't work out. She comes back and is trying to kind of find the comfort of home. And she realizes that everything is changing and finds that her neighborhood is being rapidly gentrified and in an effort to kind of hold on to the neighborhood's history, decides to make a walking tour. And as she is researching um, along with one of the new neighbors, she discovers that maybe everything is moving very quickly for a reason and more nefarious reasons than she imagined. Yeah. Yes. So on Pop Fiction Women, we talk about complicated women, which to us just means real three-dimensional human beings with contradictions and conflict. And our tagline on the show is we're complicated, which means we love to discuss women in fiction that have flaws or imperfections, who don't always make good choices, but who we relate to nonetheless. Sydney certainly qualifies. So can you talk a bit about her, what inspired her, what challenges you may have encountered when you wrote her? So what inspired her? I mean, I guess, you know, this was my first thriller. And as I was reading a lot of thrillers, I was like, you know, I get what they're going for here with people being kind of messy and having issues. But I was like, I want her to be messy and realistic, but also not like a human piece of garbage. (laughs) Because like, I feel like for me, people do awful things and like exploration of why they do awful things can be interesting. But for this particular story, I didn't want it to be focused on someone who was just doing awful things. I kind of wanted it to be someone who is kind of like an everyday person, has had ups and downs like an everyday person, is kind of shaped by the experiences that she's had, like most of us are. And so she's a little prickly. She's wary. Mm. She's tired. (laughs) She doesn't feel like Mm. dealing with anyone else's crap at the moment because she has enough of her own. But also on some level, Mm. you know, she kind of just is seeking connection. She has lost most of her connections and is, you know, a hot mess like most of us, but also on some level, trying to do the right thing, even if she's not sure what the right thing is. And even if, you know, that thing could be morally ambiguous. And just kind of, I really wanted to tap into the idea also of like the strong Black woman, and how this has become this cliche, kind of that where, yes, there are a lot of strong Black women, but it's 
a protective mechanism. It's not like something fun. Mm -hmm. And also Mm -hmm. that beneath that, you know, she's having a range of emotions from fear, grief, guilt, and all kinds of things. So I was kind of just trying to capture the range of emotions that everyone experiences and just kind of put them on display for Sydney and how they would interact with this particular experience that she's having. Well, you, you definitely accomplished that. And I do love that she just embraces that that contradiction. And there, I want to read a little bit from page sixteen, where this is one of my favorite. And I know it's a it's a theme for you, so I want to talk about this. She has this strong outside, but on the inside, she is having a range of emotions and deep emotions, conflicting emotions. So she says. I smile thinking about the days when I'd sit at the window set in the whimsical brick demi turret, a captured princess while my friends scrambled on the sidewalk out front, vying for the chance to rescue me from the evil witch holding me captive. It's cool to say the princess should save herself nowadays, but I don't think I've experienced that sensation outside of children's games of having someone willing to risk life and limb everything to save me. And I I also read something you had written in the Washington Post, again, with this idea of talking about Meghan Markle. And you wrote, the main conversation around princesses in fiction had largely been reduced to slogans like, forget princesses, I want to be a scientist. This well-intentioned and reductive argument itself ignored the fact that real princesses possess other skills and ambitions outside of being royalty. We're told that wanting to see ourselves in fantasies replete with ball gowns and crowns was regressive, ignoring that many of us, those who weren't white and straight, had never been allowed to consider ourselves princess material in the first place. I, I want to talk about that and how it feels to to embrace that contradiction. It feels, I mean, it sounds like it feels right, like that's real. Yeah, and this is something, you know, I do explore it in a lot of my work. I have a royalty series, well, mm-hmm. two now, The Reluctant Royals, and then the first book in the Runaway Royal series comes out in December. And this is something that you can see if you log on to Twitter on any given day. You'll see someone tweeting, mm-hmm. Black women are going to save us and stuff like that. And it's like, well, no, we're not. <laughs> Like, I guess we could, but number one, there are not even that many of us in the United States, you know? So kind of like there is this idea of strength that I think has, you know, some of its roots and places that are pretty ugly. Mm. The idea that we can tolerate more, we can put up with more, we don't feel as much. And I think that, you know, then you see how that extends to even when they do surveys of doctors, there are still doctors who believe that Black people and Black women don't feel in the same way. And then you see higher maternal mortality rates with Black women. So like, Mm -hmm. I know I'm like expanding, but I'm kind of, this is kind of something I think about when I'm writing anything, whether it's a thriller, romance or anything. Like, it's not always at the top of my mind, but just how ideas affect everything. I mean, our world is made of ideas. They're the foundational blocks of our of our society on some level. Uh, For example, we have been living with the idea that a president would not do certain things. And now we are faced with the reality that a president will do certain things. And what are we going to do about it? Right. So but there's 
there are these other ideas, particularly about Black women, and that can seem innocuous on some level. Okay, Black women are strong uh, without examining where it comes from. And then you see how it plays out in reality. If a Black woman goes to a hospital and says she is in pain, and a doctor has somewhere, even if they feel like they're open-minded, somewhere in the back of their mind, they have the idea, well, no, Black women are strong. Oh, and with mixed with other ideas that society has put out there. So kind of when I was writing that line and, you know, kind of that idea when I'm thinking about Black women in the books that I'm writing is that, yes, for the most part, no matter what kind of person we are, we are capable of saving ourselves because we have to be. But, and then I also think it's nice to have in a book that that be one thing that the character does not have to do. Or if she has to do it, at least mm-hmm. have someone who she knows she can rely on in that situation. A partner. Yeah. Because when you think about, you know, historically about how Black women have been portrayed in books, media, and main, mainstream books and media, it's either like a sassy friend or someone who was always helping in some way, but like mm-hmm. their needs are never really considered. Explored, yeah. So in a way, when I'm writing, I'm trying to center the story on their needs. Mm-hmm. There are many authors, there are many Black women authors who are writing right now and doing all kinds of different things. Yeah. But just kind of for me particularly, you know, I'm like writing what I want to read yeah, and what yeah. I feel like other people want to read and particularly placing Black women in these stories that often don't center them. And within those stories, also making sure that their needs are getting met in some way, even though in this thriller, like Sydney is really going through it. She's, I wouldn't say she's having all of her needs met, but at least acknowledged. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I'm sure you won't be surprised that I want to talk about Sydney and Theo. Their chemistry is based on that, you know, I don't know if I love you or hate you dynamic, but it also reveals the complications of race and gentrification as wealthy white people move into the neighborhood and the displacement that comes with that. But you added really important details to make Theo different from the other intruders. It's clearly not his Black Lives Matter t-shirt, but the fact (laughs) that he wants to learn, not just that, but the fact that he wants to learn the ways and the rules of the existing locals, not trying to impose his ways or rules on them. And he's willing to learn and listen, but also doesn't make it anyone else's responsibility. And Sydney takes notice of these things. And even though she still resists him, she respects his respect. We'd love to hear more about their relationship and what you wanted to explore with their dynamic. What I wanted to explore with their dynamic. So with Theo, I kind of wanted him to be someone who, you know, like Sydney, also isn't perfect, Mm. kind of is doing some things that are, you know, questionable, but at heart is generally a good person who has had difficulty in his life who but who also is able to think a bit differently because of the difficulties he had in his life and how they have kind of particularly shaped him i wanted him to also be a little bit of a commentary on masculinity and the idea of masculinity and you know, relationship dynamics 
and kind of the different because you know he could have been he's certainly I think would meet like the standards of what people consider masculine and media and you know film and books but also I wanted him to kind of have a Mm -hmm. a somewhat deeper emotional life beyond like you know I'm going to save this woman or I'm going to save the day even and to kind of give him a background that would allow him to be that kind of person that could have allowed for the other kind of person who thinks they're going to come in and save the day and do because on some level he does but he's at least able to kind of reflect on his observance and is able to kind of reflect on certain things and he also doesn't want to be the kind of person that would make Sydney feel bad yeah and results are binary, right? One person saves the day, one person doesn't save the day, whatever. But it's the nuance with which you explore it. And you make these characters, like you just said, kind of on the same wavelength, but just trying to figure out how those things go together and how to work together in a way that suits both of them and with their own baggage, and then also where they want to get to. And I also wanted him to be someone who was observant enough to understand, see what's going on in the neighborhood. Right. And to be the person who, you know, isn't really a bad guy or he doesn't, he think he is trying to understand the neighborhood, but also then understanding that even that is saying something that he didn't understand it before mm. or that he didn't really think about it before. And I think that... Yeah, I kind of just wanted him to be someone who's also going through things. Uh, I mean, that's kind of what I like when I write uh, dual perspective characters who are going through things and, you know, figuring out whether they can trust the other person to help them through whatever they're going through and whether they can trust themselves to help the other person what they're going through with what they're going through. Yeah, so. Yeah. But also, yes, as far as race, I kind of just wanted to, I tried not to get like too deep into it because there, you know, there are things, there are things that can be said, but also I don't think it's really that uncommon in Brooklyn in 2020 and their particular situation. It's a little more fraught with Mm -hmm. everything else going on in the book, but I kind of just wanted, you know, in this book, I kind of, they're kind of both having their point of view, like they can have different point of views, but they can't have different mm. opinions, really. Like, if, right. like I'm never going to write a book where characters, like where one character is trying to convince the other character of their worth, because if you have to do mm. that, then it's already over. Uh, so it's kind of people who are basically on the yeah. same wavelength, but just different parts of the wavelength and one or the other are both figuring out how to get more aligned, I guess. You know, it's a very amb- ambitious book, obviously, but you handle it so well that it doesn't feel like it's obviously just in there. So, and another one, speaking of these weighty topics, something else you have that you explore that we talk about a little bit on this podcast is mommy issues. And uh, no spoilers, but like their often discussed counterpart daddy issues, mommy issues have lots of different forms. Sydney happens to look at her mother like this larger than life, perfect figure. And when she compares herself to her mother, she is always going to fall short. Yeah. And, you know, when 
when Sydney hypes herself up, she uses her mother. She says, I can do this. I'm my mother's daughter. I can do this. But also when she berates herself, like at the end, she's saying, and because I'm not my mother's daughter, just her diluted progeny, uh, progeny, I second guess myself. And in that moment, she feels she's lost something. So she often references the things that her mother has taught her, the stories they shared, the way her mother protected her. So she's a good mother, but somehow that has doubled back on Sydney, especially where she is right now, which is where she's kind of questioning so much in her life. So with, without getting giving away any spoilers, because there are a lot as it relates to Sydney's mom, we want to just talk about why you you layered so much of that in uh, and that living in her shadow and being a touchstone is complicated. I think with Sydney, I was trying to show someone who doesn't really know themselves because like when we meet her, she's come back to Brooklyn. She's moved back with, with her mom in the house that her mom bought and living with her, you know, her best friend from childhood, who is someone else that she leans on. And I don't want her to be like, I don't consider her weak. But I can like, I was thinking of a particular type of person who is very strong, but they kind of have this kind of inner lack of confidence in themselves. Mm -hmm. And it results in things like that, like seeing her mom as this, you know, Mm -hmm. and I think a lot of children see their parents and their moms as these, you know, larger than life figures and these people who they can be or they can never be. And that can follow some people into adulthood. But with Sydney, I was kind of just trying to show, I feel like they're they're the particular type of person who like so she meets this guy and then that no one else particularly seemed to like, and then just gets married and moves across the country. And because she was looking for something. Mm-hmm. This is my backstory for her, is that mm-hmm. she was the kind of person who is always kind of looking for something that would make her feel like her mom, have the same amount of confidence as her mom or as her friend. And while she is, you know, a strong character, she kind of, I think, just has this certain inability to really see herself until she's put Mm. to the test. And I think, you know, that's a fairly common idea in, in fiction. But I think with her, I was kind of just trying to Imagine her who has grown up with her mom being this kind of guiding light for her. And then when she is put in the position of having to be the, you know, in charge of everything, looking for nursing homes, handling doctors and doing all of these things. And I think a thing that, you know, I actually didn't think about until this moment, but like, you know, she's berating herself, but she is she handled all of those things. Oh, yes. But still kind of was in this depression and unable to really see herself for who she was. And that's kind of a part of the relationship with Theo, with Drea and Theo. Drea, her best friend, who is kind of a little Mm. bit, you know, there's some boundary Mm. issues and codependency. But, you know, they're they're best friends. Mm -hmm. And Drea is used to just doing everything for her. She's used to Drea doing things for her. And what kind of relationship does that build over decades? And Theo, he kind of 
and you know this goes into the whole plays a bit into the rear window type thing of like he is maybe the only person mm -hmm. who has seen her how she really is mm -hmm. given their window yeah. situation and mm -hmm. he liked what he saw even though for her she probably imagined that if anyone saw her like that they would not like her right so I kind of was just kind of thinking about this idea of this person. And it's something I think about a lot and particularly with black women characters when I'm writing them, but for anyone, because I think this is a, a human, a very human thing of wanting to be really seen and mm -hmm. even yeah. seen at your worst. Mm -hmm. And then the person saying, well, okay. <laughs> I love you. I'm here. I'm here. Yeah. 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 One of our favorite things to discuss on this podcast, actually, <laughs> through a lot of the material we've covered is this being seen with a capital S. Yeah. Yeah. And it takes many different variations in, in stories, but it's, it's a favorite theme of ours. So. so we understand that part of the inspiration for this thriller came from research for your historical romances set in America. So that's very interesting to me. So can you tell us how that came about or what the connection was? The connection was, so basically I've written several historical novels and novellas set in various time periods in America, ranging from the Revolutionary War, after Revolutionary War, Civil War, Civil Rights Movement, Suffragette Movement, and kind of when you're doing and you know I've researched countless other things that I haven't had a chance to write yet and as you're doing this research like you just notice these or even not just black Americans but indigenous history Asian American history mm -hmm. Latin Latinx American history because you just start to notice these things over and over again and it's like it's unnecessary and actually not good for the country but just seemingly happens anyway again and again and i feel like unfortunately we are living that right now where you see these like laws being passed that are explicitly to hurt a specific group of people or prevent them from advancing or to take something away from them after they had been given particular rights especially or you see, you know, ways of forcing people to live in bad areas or to prevent them from gaining, you know, generational wealth or, and then you see it. So one of the things it's like kind of was building in the back of my mind and kind of, you know, honestly, just depressing <laughs> when you're, every time you're researching, you learn some new and horrible facts mm -hmm. that usually mm -hmm. don't go into like some of my romance, some of the historical romances do get pretty dark. But like, well, I would say not most of them don't, most of them kind of deal with the issues of the day. But for me, I think an unconditional freedom, which was the last book in the Loyal League trilogy, the Civil War spies goes pretty dark because I mean, I was feeling pretty dark. I was writing it after the 2016 election. Yeah. And it, it's about the hero, <laughs> the hero of that book is on a quest to assassinate Jefferson Davis. Obviously, he doesn't succeed, but that was my mind frame at this time. Yes, um, yes. He, so he was like, and basically, he was a freed black man who was kidnapped into slavery. So he's kind of based on Solomon Northup. But what happens after, and he joins this uh, secret society of 
black people, black spies trying to take down the Confederacy. And then his, he's partnered with a, a black Cuban woman who is a, a double agent. But, but basically in the book, it's kind of exploring. So he has PTSD. They, mm. you know, there was no really term for PTSD back then. And it's kind of dealing with those emotional issues, but also the idea of being betrayed by your country that you believed in and you thought you could change. So that was kind of, I feel like in a way, it's kind of a companion book to this book, even though it's a, not related in any way. Interesting. Emotionally, yeah. it's a companion book. It's someone right. who is in this, you know, setting and kind of on a lot of the book is him meditating on what it means to be American, to be Black in America mm. when the country doesn't deserve you. And, you know, that book mm. was very hard to write. And I finished it. I was satisfied with the ending, but I mean, obviously I couldn't change history. So I wasn't completely <laughs> satisfied. Um, so with this book, it was kind of taking all of the anger from seeing all of these things repeat over and over again. Right. For no reason other than cruelty, because when you really look at America, American history and even America in this moment, if everyone is yeah. just given equal rights, it would be a much more prosperous country. It is literally like mm -hmm. racism and bigotry and homophobia and all of that actually costs. <laughs> I mean, apart from the emotional cost and mm -hmm. the generational trauma and all of that, it is not a good business idea. Like, right. Uh, no. So right. it's really dedication to cruelty over mm. generations mm. that that leads to, you know, a few people make money from it, but the vast majority of people do not. And so it's kind of just grappling with all of those things and kind of how it feels like this relentless cycle and thinking about how to break the cycle, if the cycle can be broken and kind of the ways that, you know, the reality, historical reality is scarier than any horror movie when you are looking yeah. through these things. So it kind of yeah, took all of yeah. that. And also like my just general annoyance with the way a lot of history is overlooked. Like there, Sydney yeah. has one line yeah. that I didn't realize it until I was like, reading an excerpt from it after the book was you know already the arcs were out and she has a line when she's on the first historical tour where she says annoying people with history they don't want to hear is fun or something like that mm -hmm. and I was like okay I'm not Sydney but that line was me though that's a good yeah yeah <laughs> like looking at my backlist like yeah that's me talking yeah I, I you know I hear what you're saying and it's just the way you positioned it is so just mind boggling. You're right. It's a it's a real dedication to cruelty because it makes no sense on many levels, on right, so yeah. many levels. So, yeah, you've we've been talking about this throughout, but you've written a half a dozen romance novels, including the Reluctant Royal series, the Loyal League series. And then you have a new one you just say coming out in December. What What is that? That one is called How to Catch a Queen, and it is the first in the Runaway Royal series, which is like the extra reluctant <laughs> royal. But basically, it's basically, it's another complicated woman, actually. And I, I 
am interested in how seeing certain political news right now, I'm interested in how the heroin will be received by some people. Mm. Because so basically, we, the couple, we briefly meet them in the final book of the Reluctant Royals. They're already married. It's an arranged marriage. But this book goes to their marriage. And it's set in a kind of African Highland kingdom. It's a, a fantasy kingdom. And the heroine, who is from a different kingdom from the first series, she is someone who, you know, grew up in, from very humble beginnings. And she she is from a kingdom with a very strong queen. And one day mm. the, the queen comes to her school and does a speech and she's like, I'm going to be a queen. Like, this is the most powerful mm. thing you can be. I want to be it. I'm going to do it. So she basically mm. dedicates her life to like, you know, she's like a genius. She can be anything she wants, but she wants to be a queen um, and dedicates all of her energy to doing that instead of being, you know, like an engineer or, or any of the possible things. And obviously she has backup plans because Great. she's smart, but she's like, this yeah. is the fastest way to power. <laughs> she's like, this is the fastest way to power for someone who isn't born into wealth and who, but then basically she gets an arranged marriage through this marriage royal marriage app and it's in this kingdom that is kind of very regressive seemingly fine for women it's not like it's patriarchal but you know women are fine no you can't really hold mm. power but why do you want that like we the council is in charge they are a bunch of old men who it was a kingdom that you know was colonized and won their independence and then they return to a kingdom status and so so basically and then the king her king is he does not want to be king he was born into this and he has spent his entire life being told mm. that if he ever messes up he is going to ruin yeah. everything that you know his father and the council have built he has anxiety but of course like no one's talking about anxiety in this kingdom and kings right. don't have anxiety so he doesn't have anxiety no so it's basically him and also he's dealing with grief his father has just died for him to become king mm. and it's basically uh it's a kind of a mix of a Shahrazad story plus a blue the bluebeard fairy tale because she's like they make an arrangement where he will come to her room at night and she will tell him her you know brilliant ideas for the kingdom instead of fairy tales but also mm. in this kingdom arbitrarily of course there are marriage trials because there's only supposed to be one true queen so the king gets married for four months to a woman if she's not the true queen then she goes and then uh, a new queen there's a new marriage so so it's kind of like a play on bluebeard but without the murdering of the wives yeah. and like you know part of wow. the book is yeah. the idea yeah. of like well this doesn't make sense like what is someone supposed to do in four months? Like, what can a queen... So the queen has no power. Right. And so basically, yeah. like, it, in a way, it's a fairy tale about the disenfranchisement of women, even when they are per... Even when technically they are given power and the way that women who actively pursue power are seen. And, you know, the way... And this goes back to the Washington Post article, too. The way governments and organizations and monarchies again everything is built on story 
the stories that people tell mm -hmm. themselves, the ideas that people have of, of themselves and uh, kind of what happens when you try to get them to start changing those ideas to be more inclusive, to be, to change for the better. But the thing about changing for the better is that, that people have to admit that they were not the best or not doing the best. And a lot of people are reluctant to do mm -hmm. that. A lot of, when right. I say people, I mean, societies are will, mm -hmm. unwilling to do that. So, I mean, it's a romance. It's about this, basically about an already married couple falling in love while trying to save this kingdom and also the end of the marriage trial coming up. It's also about like, you know, how women are kind of gaslit and told, well, what more do you want? You, you have everything you want. Yeah. And I mean, you Look, have to, made... there's a queen. How yeah. can you say that yeah. there are no women yeah. in power and things like that? So yeah, I guess a lot of my feelings about things going on went into that. Because uh, I was like, yeah, I'm going to write this fun, like, adventure romp. And it did not turn into that. <laughs> you, but, you yeah, it's so unique about your point of view that that comes built into your ideas of romance and mm -hmm. power and all of that. I mean, that's, I think, what, what makes you so successful there as an author. So we, oh, from our research, which in this case truly is Instagram stalking. <laughs> we saw that you recently have a birthday and you are a Leo. I am. And I am a fellow Leo. Yes, I am. I am a Leo as well. And Corinne is a fire sign. She's Aries. an Aries. So we do have a little bit of a side interest on here with all <laughs> our, our episodes, but particularly with our author interviews of asking about astrology. So do you relate to being a Leo? I do. I am a double fire sign. I am a Leo with Sagittarius oh. rising. Oh. <laughs> it was funny. I felt like this particular Leo season, I was like, I don't know if it's the comet that passed or what was going on, but I really was like, let me take some selfies. I didn't, I was, I restrained myself. I was like, I did the <laughs> selfies. But I was like, I, something is going on. And then I was like seeing so many other Leos being like, yeah, look at this selfie because I feel like it and I'm a Leo. And I was like, okay, something is going on this yeah. year. Yeah, but um, I don't know. I'm with you. I don't know what it was. I So yeah, I mean, I do, I feel like Leos are misunderstood though. I feel like mm. people, people think that we seek out the spotlight and I don't think that's particularly true. I think that, Mm -hmm. If we happen to be there, we know how to make use of it. Mm -hmm. So I, I feel like there are other signs that are actually more spotlight seeking. We are spotlight compatible. <laughs> so I, I, that is mm -hmm. my personal feeling, but obviously I'm biased. Of course. <laughs> well, I'll tell you on this, we keep a tally of all the creators that we, mm -hmm. you know, are, look at and talk about and the two top are Leo and Sagittarius. So you've got it covered there. Yeah, you've got both. <laughs> yes, you do. Yes. We also often talk about the creators that really inspire us. We just finished Michaela Cole's I May Destroy You and loved the line that she gave to Arabella that says, control what you can, no more, no less. Or Liz Feldman, the creator of Dead to Me. When we covered that, we read an interview with her where she said to find your wound and write from it 
And so there's a lot of examples from, from our shows of just like the complicated women that inspire us and, and things that they've said and shared with the world. So who are the complicated women that inspire you? And you can you could pick someone in fiction or a real life woman you admire, whatever you'd like. There are so many people who have inspired me. Can I name as many as I want? Absolutely. <laughs> okay. I'll tell you, that's what Aries never hold Leo back. <laughs> <laughs> from from my thinking about like from my youth so i'm a huge like manga and anime fan so probably rumiko takahashi who was the she's the writer and artist for many many manga that that have become anime but like ranma one half amazing uh, Kuku and do you draw? I do. I'm not that good because I stopped practicing. But, you know, one day, one day, I'll get back to it. A more modern example in the same wheelhouse are Sayao Yamamoto, Yamamoto and Mitsuro Kubo, who made uh, Yuri on Ice, which is one of my favorite modern anime. And it had just really masterful storytelling that really impacted me. And also something that impacted me was that Kubo said somewhat, because this, in the show, it's an ice skating anime, but there is also romance and it's gay. And someone asked why there was no homophobia on the show. And she said, because this is my world and I made it and I get to decide what happens in it. And for me, I was just like, wow. Oh, shit. <laughs> like, it's one of those things you know. But then you're like, that's right. Like, I get to decide whether there's anything ugly here. Um, And if there is how it's treated, but also it doesn't have to be here. So that's something that really impacted how I thought about how I thought about writing romance and anything really, that I get to decide and it was kind of something that I was already on that path I guess but really kind of was like mm-hmm. oh you need this further than you have yeah so that was really yeah. important to me Beverly Jenkins who is an amazing black romance writer I also think that she is probably the number one author of black American historical fiction and I would even say American historic and historical fiction in general but doesn't really get counted because she is a romance writer. But she, if you want to read some complicated women, her heroines are so amazing. But, you know, she paved the way for so many of us. And also she is writing these amazing, funny, feminist, and incredible books where you learn so much history. And then there's also like romance and sexy times. Yeah. She's also just a wonderful person who is very supportive in real life. So Beverly Jenkins, and I could go on and on and on. Courtney Milan, who writes amazing romance and also just stands up for what she believes in, in romance and in all aspects of life. Yeah, I mean, I could could name a hundred people. Yeah, this is such a telling question because... Sometimes people think it's promoting someone else when you're supposed to be promoting yourself, but you just lit up and you're like, okay, how many people (laughs) can I talk about right now? Because they're all in my head. They're all in my mind. I love that. Well, thank you so much for joining us. And when no one is watching is out September 1st. 
Yes. And then the Runaway Royals is December this year. Yes, December 1st. Wow. <laughs> oh, wow. my goodness. Okay. Jeez, yes. Congratulations. <laughs> thank yes, you. Yes, congratulations. And thank you so much for taking time to talk with us. Wait, before we go, tell people where they can find you, website, social media, whatever you want to, whatever you're active on. So I am, you can find my website, alyssacole.com. And I'm usually on Twitter at alyssacolelit, L-I-T. And the same on Instagram, where you can see pictures of the random animals that come to my house. (laughs) Some of them live here, some of them don't. I am not usually on Facebook. I have an account. uh, Don't get mad if you add me as a friend and I don't (laughs) respond because I do not look at that except when I go on to like be on a Facebook live and then I immediately scurry away before looking at anything. I came here to do what I have to do. I'm off now. Oh, and I have a YouTube channel actually. I have a YouTube channel, which right now is only being used for, I do a date night event with loyalty bookstore and DC and there's one There are two stores, one in D.C., one in Silver Springs, Maryland. But it's an event where I has been every two weeks uh, since May, you know, after Mm -hmm. all the author events were canceled because of COVID. Mm -hmm. We're talking with romance, usually with two or three romance authors who have have had recent releases. And we kind of just have fun. We talk about their books. uh, We're basically like on a, you know, friend date with all of the people who come to hang out. And what their favorite, you know, TV show that they're watching and stuff like that. So if you want to watch anything like that with romance authors, it is on my YouTube account or it's on my website too, but either one. Okay. Okay, good. All right. Well, thank you so much, (laughs) Alyssa, for taking the time to talk to us. Thank you for having me. This has been Pop Fiction Women with Corinne and Kate. If you enjoyed the show, please tell the complicated women in your life. And the men who love them. Yes, tell them to listen. And then to follow on Spotify or review and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. And of course, share on social media. Tag us with your favorite books, TV shows, and movies starring complicated women on Facebook and Instagram at Pop Fiction Women or on Twitter at Pop underscore women. For more coverage of the women you love, or to find out if you qualify as a complicated woman, go to popfictionwomen.com. And keep it complicated.